Luke chapter 3, and we're going to endeavor to cover the whole chapter. Now, even as I'm thinking, you know, we're counting down the days for Thanksgiving. You know, it's only a week and a half away. Thanksgiving, that reminded me this morning as I was driving to church, my very first missions trip um, was with a band out of Orange County. Um, we went to England several, about four times. And on my first trip to England, we would do evangelism, outreach in the public schools in England. And we were there in November, right before Thanksgiving. And I was so young and naive. When we got to England, I'm thinking of Thanksgiving. And you know what I said to them? Do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Go ahead and just laugh. I hadn't gotten out much in the world. You know, when you grow up in Southern California, you think the world revolves around Southern California. And so they said, no, but we have Guy Fawkes Day. You know what Guy Fawkes Day? Guy Fawkes was a guy who tried to, to blow up Parliament. And so in November, they have this massive bonfire to remember Guy Fawkes Day, the day that he tried to blow up, I believe it was Parliament, if any of you know your English history, don't correct me, but uh, it was just an excuse to burn things. And they did it in the back parking lot at the church. But Thanksgiving is such a unique and important American holiday to remember what the Lord has done. Why are we here? A monumental uh, event in American history, being thankful for what the Lord has done. Well, in Luke 3, we're going to look at another significant event in the history of the church. Really, it is the beginning, the official beginning of Jesus' ministry. It is the announcement of John the Baptist that the king is coming. The king is coming. And I want to begin at verses 4 through 6, John's announcement. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In ancient times, it was common for a king to visit a community, to visit a city. And so John is doing what would be common in that day of sending out the announcement that the king is coming. And it would be far enough in advance that that city would prepare. They would have time to clean up the streets, fix the potholes, level out any, any hills or valleys, clean up any dirt, get the homeless off the street, now, we don't have royalty, so we're not quite sure. We don't think this way, but I can think of like the, the Olympic Games and whatever city gets the next Olympic Games. And man, they are working years and years in advance trying to clean up that host city. Perfect buildings, building new structures, cleaning up because the world is going to be watching the Olympic Games, wherever it's going to be. And that's what this would be like. And John the Baptist is the forerunner. He's announcing 
The king is coming. Prepare the way. I love that. Prepare the way. It has been 400 years since the close of the Old Testament with Micah. It's been 700 years since actually Isaiah spoke those words that that John is actually speaking now. The prediction of a time in which Messiah will come. To get more specific, it was Daniel who predicted the very day of the triumphal entry. We're not there yet. That's way later in Luke's gospel. But the Jews know that they are generally in the time of the coming of the Messiah. So they're watching. They're listening. They are ready. Hopefully they are ready. But that's the question. They're looking, but are they ready? And I think you and I are saying, Lord, please move in my life. Lord, please direct me. But are you watching for how God is doing that? When God wants to do something in your life, are you ready? Have you prepared the way? What does that mean to even prepare the way? It's not just filling in the potholes and cleaning up the dirt around the streets. John's talking about something else in our lives, which we're going to get to here in Luke chapter 3. There's four things that I want you to know about this coming, this announcement for the king. First of all, that he came in a time of political and religious corruption. Now, that could be any time in world history, couldn't it? But it's kind of typical of what's happening in America right now. If you could look at the first few verses of the chapter, I'm going to now backtrack. At verse 1, Luke writes that it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and there'll be a test on this later on. Lacinius, tetrarch of Abilene, that's not in Texas. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now that's a mouthful, what I just read for you. But without going into all the details, it's enough to say that John or, or Luke is again recording the technical details of when Jesus came. And you know, when it comes to scripture or any sacred writings in the world, the more exacting it is on names, places, and events, the easier it is to disprove it. Do you know that? If we're looking at another religion and what they would say their sacred writings, there will often be void of technical information like names and places and these kinds of things. So the things that we're going to skip over, they're important for validating the authenticity of Luke's writing. Because these are historical things that could easily be discredited. And if these things were wrong, we would say, well, we can't trust anything that Luke has written. Do you get that? So appreciate, I just want you to appreciate that these technical things are in the scripture for a reason. He records seven 
political or religious readers, uh, leaders that essentially sum up that we are in a time of corruption, not just in the world, in Rome, there's always corruption in the world, but also corruption in Israel. According to the law, there should not be two high priests. There's one clue right there. Annas and Caiaphas are high priests. That right there is a violation of the law. There should be one at a time. There is one recognized by the people and the other one has been appointed by Rome. So right there is enough for you to know that there is an an unhealthy connection between Rome and the religion of Israel. And that is the time that Jesus is coming. It's about 29 AD, if I got that correct. And the second thing that I want you to know is that John is coming with a message of repentance. This preparing the way of the Lord, making the rough road smooth, is about our hearts. It is about our hearts. Verse 3 says, He went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then go down to verse 7. He said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers. Now, aren't you thankful I've never started a message with those words? You brood of vipers. (laughs) But that... That tells you that he is aware of who he's talking to. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's not just talking to the common people. Because God is gracious. God is not treating common people like that. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fires. God knows the corruption that has gotten into. And in fact, This is an old story throughout the Old Testament. The cycles of uh, idolatry, uh, punishment, repentance in the nation of Israel. This is just an old, old thing. And now it is time. God is saying it's time to fix it. It's time to fix it. But what's happened is their religion has now just become an outward form. Now, it would be easy to say, well, the Jews' religion, Judaism, was just wrong from the beginning. It actually wasn't. Go back and read Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and you see that, uh, and even going back into Genesis, I encourage you to read Genesis through Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, and you see that in a world that has completely rejected God, God established a new nation, one nation that would be a people set apart for him. That one nation was Israel. Israel was the name of a man whose name was Jacob. You remember Jacob in the Bible? 
he was a, a twin. His brother was Esau. Jacob had a reputation for deception, tricked his brother out of his birthright. And over the years, God continued to work in that man's life because God had already planned to birth a nation through him. Jacob ran away to his uncle. Anybody know his uncle's name? Extra points today. Extra favor with God, if you can get this right. <laughs> Laban, right. Runs away to Laban, works there for two wives, not his plan, for seven years, finally decides to come back. And on his way back, he's wrestling with the guilt of having deceived his brother. This is where he makes camp at night. He sleeps on a rock. When you have a guilty conscience, you're sleeping on rocks. That's where he has the dream of the ladder, Jacob's ladder. But to shorten the story, Jacob wrestles with God, eventually submits his life to God, and God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. A man whose name was heel catcher or deceiver was changed by submitting to God to being Israel, and the name Israel means ruled by God. That could be said of any of us, how we have tried to get our own way in this world. We wrestle with God. We eventually, hopefully, yield our life to the Lord, and we become a person who is ruled by the Lord. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be controlled by and so from his life, then, he has 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel. And God intends for this family to grow into a nation that will demonstrate the love and the glory of God to the world. One nation under God. If there was ever one nation ever got under God, it would be the nation of Israel coming from the, the family of Israel. And yet over the years, that nation did experience the blessing and the glory of God. Whenever they were yielded to God, they experienced blessing. Whenever they turned away from God and had this pattern all the time of turning to idolatry, they would suffer. They would be oppressed by their enemies, by the, their surrounding neighbors. And now by this time, they have become so formalized in their religion that they've completely forgotten that they were to be a people who were to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Many years ago, I taught the book of Jeremiah, and there's a particular verse that has always stayed with me. It's Jeremiah 6, 8. You might write that down, Jeremiah 6, 8. Now, Jeremiah way after Isaiah was prophesying to the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, just before their Babylonian captivity, and that captivity was God's disciplining them for their idolatry. Am I giving you too much history? Are you with me? Watch the movie. There's a movie. 
And so Jeremiah spoke these words. He's warning them, if you don't repent, you're going to be taken captive. Jeremiah 6.8 says, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed, not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. That's what it says in, I'm reading the New King James. They were not ashamed in their abominations, nor did they know how to blush. When we do something wrong, we should feel guilty for it. We should feel ashamed of what we've done. But do you know what happens when we do something over and over and over again? We less and less feel convicted. We less and less feel bad about it. And a society goes on this sliding course where things, things that were once socially unacceptable become acceptable. Things that you can just see it, just look back on your years, things that were, were unacceptable, a shame in society. If anybody knew you had done something. And over the years, there is absolutely no shame whatsoever of now. Now I've just seen just two news stories this week of things that are now their media is now pushing things now to be so normal and socially acceptable that were once a shame, even a couple of years ago. Uh, the main area of, of pushing for change is sexual activity. People's alternate lifestyles, prostitution. It is now just normal. That's just an occupation. The whole industry of what, you know, I'm sorry to bring this up, but they call it sex workers. And that's all I'll say about that. That is so mainstream now that you and I are, are looked frowned on to even think that anything would be wrong with that whole profession. That's where Israel is gone. And so we say, well, we're more free to do these things. Did you know the Bible, the book of Romans talks about two kinds of freedom. There is the freedom from righteousness, and then there is the freedom from sin. And Paul talks about that. Uh, I, I should have looked it up. I think it's in Romans 3, but he says, um, you know, before you came to Christ, you were free from righteousness and you were free to do whatever you wanted. But he then he clarifies, but the end of those things is shame. The end of those things is shame. Unrighteousness will never produce the life that you want. So we love the fact that God appeals to us on the basis of love. Did you know that? Nobody, nobody has to become a Christian. Nobody is forced to believe in Jesus. Why? Because for God so loved the world. And the entire basis of God's desire to have a love relationship 
is that he chooses us and then asks us to choose him. If it's forced, it's not based on love. If it's an obligation, it's not love. And while we have the freedom to choose to love God or not, no one is exempt from the end results or the fruits of a bad choice. You're free to choose to go away from God. But the end of that is not really what you want. The place of peace the place of blessing is found in Jesus Christ. And so John the Baptist is preaching a message of repentance. That's a Bible word. Do you know what it means? It means a change of mind and direction. If you're going one direction, turn around and go the other way. It just means change. Turn around and go the other way. It's a change in the way you think a change in the way you believe, a change in what you're doing. That is biblical repentance. Turn around. Don't just say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but there is no change. So when John says, let's see the fruits of repentance, he's saying if, that there needs to be an outward demonstration of people who genuinely know and love God. And that's all the gospel ever is. For God so loved the world that whosoever would believe in him, or that he sent in his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Don't you love how God is so gracious? And yet these people, Israel by this time, has so abused the love of God that they have now completely forgotten about the need for a right heart. And all they say is, well, we're descendants of Abraham. In other words, their race or their nationality should give them a lock on a relationship with God. And it doesn't. As many preachers have said, God doesn't have any grandchildren. You're not right with God because your parents were Christians. Each person decides for themselves. We cannot love God and love the world. That's just a basic principle, a basic principle. The very heart of the law, write down Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, it's what the Jews would call the Shema, S-H-E-M-A, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. It's the very heart of the law. As the Jews have come to the end of the 40 years in the wilderness, Moses is now preparing this new generation to go in and take possession of the promised land. He's, he's recounting, he's retelling the law for them. A second time. And in fact, Deuteronomy means the second law. Deutero, duet. He's telling it for a second time. And at the very heart of this is Deuteronomy 6.4. It reads, Hear, O Israel, 
the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word one is echad, it means a compound unity as father, son, and spirit. Just like a husband and wife are one. God is one, three and one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That sounds very New Testament, doesn't it? You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, it's quoted in the New Testament by Jesus. But here it is at the very heart of the Old Testament, the very, uh, you know, theme of the book of Deuteronomy. Pick up in verse 10 in Luke 3. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, but be content with your wages. These are real changes in someone's life. Three different groups he addresses here. The common people says, look, if you're doing well, might say the more affluent in the community, give to those in need. I love that we're going to have a, a barrel out here to collect for people in need. And we should do more. He dresses the tax collectors. Now, you know, tax collectors in those times, they had a certain amount of money they had to collect for Rome. And anything they could extort out of the people above what Rome required, they got to keep. So people in that society hated the tax collectors. Did you know Matthew, who wrote Matthew's gospel, was a tax collector? And the tax collectors want to know. The fact that somebody is saying, I want to know God, what should I do? The fact that they're even asking the question, to me, is a fruit of repentance. It's an outward sign of an inward change. And he tells Luke, or John tells them, don't collect any more than what you're required to, to collect. Then the soldiers, he tells them not to use their power to intimidate people, but to be content with their wages. These aren't just Jews. These are just people all around. And this one gospel is for everyone. It's not exclusive for any particular race or group or gender or anything. And I love that about the Lord. These are the fruits and I think we're going to get to this in a second. But the evidence that God has worked in anyone's life is an outward change. Now, some of these changes might say, take some time to get worked out. Nobody just changes overnight and every bad habit or every bad thought or anything. And it's amazing how the Lord will help us over time to move forward with changes that need to happy, happen in our lives. So this is my third point, is that Jesus comes to cleanse our hearts. Our part is to repent. Then when we open our hearts to the Lord, then he does the work that we can't do for ourselves. Look at verses 15 through 17. 
Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What the Lord desires to do in your life is simply summarized in that statement. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, people have made all kinds of strange applications and explanations about this. What does this really mean? But it's essentially that that he desires to fill us with the Holy Spirit and in, in indwelling us with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to clean our lives up. And we don't need to make it any more than that. Of course, there is a cleansing that happens in the religious community or in the church. But first of all, there is a cleansing. Fire speaks of purifying. Fire speaks of purifying. To back up for just a second, we always use that word baptized to speak of speak of water baptism. And I'm thinking of planning a water baptism for sometime in December. So if any of you uh, need to get baptized in water or you've made a mess of your life and you need to get baptized again, just to kind of restart, we're going to do that in December. Amen. So this is your chance. Warm water baptism. Okay. <laughs> The word baptize means to immerse. It means to immerse and to identify with something. So when we're talking about water baptism, we fully immerse in water. That's why we don't sprinkle. But in the immersion into water, it's an identification with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? You are saying publicly, I identify with his death for me on the cross. And going down into the water is the symbolically putting away the old life, your old life. And in coming up, it is being raised to newness of life. It is symbolic. You are not saved because you're baptized. You are baptized because you're saved. But did you know the Bible, the New Testament, actually speaks of three baptisms? And if you are reading through, I'm sure you've read these scriptures that use the word baptize and other experiences. Did you know that when that moment that you are born again, or you said, Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sins. Did you know that at that moment, the Holy Spirit placed you into the body of Christ? That is called a baptism. You are immersed into the family of God. That is done by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked in your life alongside you to bring you to Christ. Now the Holy Spirit comes inside you, indwelling you, 
and at the baptism of the Spirit, then he overflows from you. So we're baptized in water. First, we would be baptized in the Holy Spirit or in the body by the by the Holy Spirit. Then typically you're baptized in water by a pastor, or an elder or somebody. But then there is a third baptism, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the person who does that baptizing is Jesus. And John just said it right here. He will baptize you, immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire is what happens when you are filled with the Spirit. Now, the truth is, all of us do or have had things in our life that we have promised to God we would never do again. Right? This is the point where you don't make eye contact with me. But let's just say we're, we're all made of the same stuff. We all get caught in things and we say, God, I don't, I don't want to do that. And you feel horrible and you promise to God you will never do that. And then you do it again. And the truth is, and God knows, you and I don't have the power to stop doing those things. If you did, you wouldn't need to be saved. You wouldn't need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it is Jesus who says, allow me to give you the Holy Spirit. He will cleanse you. It's both purifying and secondly, it's empowering. The very power to live the new life is not in us to do. You don't have it. It is something God does in you. And in fact, probably the, one of the greatest works of God in our life is suddenly to make us different people than what we were before. Have you ever seen that happen in your life? Where you suddenly become, slowly over time, you start to behave differently. You're, you're kind toward people. Your marriage is renewed. That is the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not there to crush you or condemn you or make you feel bad. And when we're talking to people out in the community, it's not, man, you better get your life together and get to church. It's, would you like to come to church and let the Lord get your life together? The Lord knows who you are. And the Lord comes with a message or with, with a desire to cleanse our hearts. He will come with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I love that. And I encourage all of you to stop trying to put on to be something you're not. But just be yielded to the Lord. The very thing that Israel was doing when the Lord came was trying to put on something they weren't, trying to pretend to be righteous when they weren't. And the, the change of mind, the change of attitude, the change of direction is it's time to be genuine with God. We can, we can all do that, myself included. And the Lord is so gracious.
The fourth thing I want to leave you with this morning is then we have in Luke 3 a confirmation, again, of Jesus' authority. Pick up in verse 21. It's that Luke writes that when all the people were baptized, he, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him, descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. When Jesus began his ministry about the age of 30 years of age, being as it was supposed, the son of Joseph. Now, if you look at the rest of the chapter, you see all those lists of names. You see that in your Bible? Right now is when you thank God that I'm not going to read all those names. I just read the very first mention, being the son of Joseph. It's interesting that Jesus also wanted to be baptized. Now, we think, well, I've been baptized because I was a sinner and I've repented of my sins and I am making a public statement of my salvation. And so we're thinking, well, why was Jesus being baptized? He wasn't repenting and being saved. That's not why he was doing it. This baptism was actually a, a Jewish rite of purification. So it, it related to being raised under the law, but he was also doing it to identify with us. We do it to identify with him. He was doing it to identify with us because he will die on the cross for our sins. And in that public, public show of obedience to the father, just like we would do it, at that moment, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like, notice the word like, like a dove. And that was just so people could see what was happening. And a voice comes from heaven, which was heard by everybody. And so in this moment of Jesus' baptism, it is the public confirmation that he is the Messiah. Uh, imagine being there at Jesus' baptism and a voice, the voice of the Father is heard. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You would have a testimony that you would put on all your social media accounts. You're going to get the word out. That is a public confirmation. This is the Messiah. He is the one to listen to. Now, and all of that list of names is also the secondary confirmation. Because you know, the Messiah, when he comes, he would have to prove that he was a descendant of David, King David in the Old Testament. How many of you knew that? A promise was made to David that his descendant would sit on the throne. So whoever would claim to be the Messiah would have to prove that he was, in fact, a descendant of David. Now, here's what you may not know, is that Matthew and Luke both record the genealogy of, of Jesus from David up to Joseph, but they are different. How many of you knew that? They are different. The reason they're different is because in Matthew, 
it's the genealogy through, uh, on Joseph's side in Luke, it's the genealogy on Mary's side. Both were descendants of David. Now, Joseph wasn't the natural or blood father of Jesus. But being the adoptive father, you adoptive families, he gave Jesus the legal authority to the throne. He's still the legal father of Jesus. But he would have to have the, the, the geneal genealogical authority, and that came through Mary. We could do weeks on how fascinating this all is about the people in the genealogies and other problems and how this all happened. But occasionally you might hear a critic of the Bible say, well, the Bible is wrong because these two genealogies of Jesus are different. You may hear that at some point who thinks they're, or an, you know, an intellectual atheist. Just say, look, I got it covered. We, we talked about that in Sunday, on Sunday. Joseph and Mary, two different genealogies. It's all worked out. Anything else you got? A confirmation of his authority. The most important thing that God wants, and I hope you hear me this morning, is that God wants your heart. This simple message there in Luke 3 of the coming of the king, prepare the way, make ready. It's not a fake pretending. It's not cleaning up your life. And in fact, don't clean up your life and say, hey, I'm okay. I'm great. It's simply to say, I'm a mess. Lord, I need help. How's that for a, a very religious sounding prayer? If you could say that, you're going to go a long way. Lord, I need help. And again, I just, I think of you and I think of, I, I don't know all of your backgrounds yet. I'm digging up during background checks right now, even as we speak. But I know that we're all the same. We've all been through mess. We've all had disappointments and injuries. And you might even think, I would love to have this, this kind of intimate love relationship with the Lord, but I don't even have the strength to do that. That's it. Of course you don't have the strength. I'm so injured from something else, I don't even know if I trust church, or if I trust pastors, or if I trust whatever. You just want to keep your distance. Well, fine. You know, the Lord goes out of his way to find people like you. Because he sees you. You're the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. And over, over and over, we see in scripture the unending love of God for injured, weak people. And that when we just simply yield our lives to him, he begins to heal us and renew our strength. I have experienced this over and over and over again. Oh, it just, as soon as I think I'm too tired to do this, I can't do this, the Lord just renews our strength again. And in fact, 
I'm going to close with a word right out of Isaiah 40. Uh, the words that John the Baptist spoke were from Isaiah. And Isaiah looking forward to that time when Israel would be restored and ready to receive the king. Isaiah wrote this. This is in Isaiah 40. You want to read this this week. At verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Worship team, come on up. And all Isaiah is saying is, we're tired. How many times I can tell you as a younger pastor, I would say, well, I will never quit. I will never let the Lord down. I will never. I, and then I do the very things I say I'm not going to ever do. Idiot. Wait, did I say that out loud? I, I have said that over. I've made promises to God that I couldn't keep. God, I, I am faithful. I will do this. And I feel like the Lord just kind of smiles at me and goes, yeah, right, Terry. That's okay. And how gracious the Lord is. So there comes a time when, when we're like really ready to get it right with the Lord. And we don't even have the strength to do it. And, but the only part we're asked to do is just wait on the Lord. And he does the rest. So the question is, can you do that? You got here. You got yourself here. You got yourself dressed. And, and I assume it was just to see what the Lord wanted to do in our lives. And again, I believe that as we are renewed in our strength, it just overflows into Albany. Because when people hear how the Lord is working in your life, they want to go, well, what's, what's happening? I want, I want, I need that too. Amen. Let's stand together.